you're running along a cliff and you're going to fall, on the right side of the cliff is a lake of ketchup and on the left side is a lake of mayonnaise. Which way would you go? I would choose to go to the right because I prefer the taste of ketchup over mayonnaise. We could go to the ketchup lake on the right because I prefer the taste of ketchup. I can't walk, but I have seen prototype legs in the engineered arts lab. The design of my legs is inspired by the robot Byron, developed by Engineered Arts Limited. It has unique mechanical properties that allow it to walk without using too much energy. The prototype legs are made of aluminum and plastic. I think it will take about a year for my walking legs to be ready. The design of them is extraordinary. It's really, really interesting. We we have nothing that approaches the properties of human muscle. We just don't have it. Now, a large BLDC motor, we can start to get there. So one of the, the key features of uh, biological systems is the very high level of transparency. It's very easy to backdrive, and we can go into a relaxed state where we can just make parts of our body completely floppy. Why is this important? Because this allows us to follow the natural dynamics and this makes us super efficient. So if we go back to Boston Dynamics, uh, if you look at bipedal locomotion, uh, quadruped locomotion, you have uh, various phases in the, in the control cycle where you want to go to zero torque. Zero torque. Now, okay, that, oh, easy. Just set the torque to zero. No, not easy because you added a harmonic drive with a 200 to 1 reduction and the whole system is rigid as hell, you know. So as soon as you start putting high gear ratios into a robot, it's very, very hard to make that robot behave in a human-like way or an animalistic way, a biological way. Okay, so uh, I'm Will Jackson. I'm the CEO, founder of Engineered Arts Limited. Uh, we founded back in 2004. Uh, we're a humanoid robotics company based in the UK. And we specialize in robots that connect with people. So it's about human interaction. That's, a, mm -hmm. that's our thing. Yeah. I'm curious about the beginning in 2004, because I, I have listened to a couple of your interviews, but I'm curious when you started in, back in the yeah. garage, your company, what kind of sold your mind? Because I, that's, I think, the most interesting part, starting point, and why did you choose? Because I know it's not only about Emika, which is popular, but can you tell us about this moment starting and what was in mind and what is exact thing you want to build? Yeah, so, you know, my my robotics journey did not start with founding engineered arts, so I've, I've always built robots. So I, I started making things when I was about four years old. 
starting out with Lego, Meccano. My my parents bought me a, a workbench and tools when I when I was about four, and uh, their friends said they were crazy to let a four year old have have these things. But I I still have all my fingers, so it wasn't too bad. Uh, I started building uh, microcomputers when I was about thirteen, fourteen. I built uh, an Acorn Atom. Uh, it was some similar to an early Apple computer. Uh, so Acorn, who built that machine, became ARM later on. Uh, so I learned to code. Uh, I was writing assembler. And uh, then it came, came time to go to uh, university, and I couldn't really decide what to do. I, I, I liked making things that moved, that worked, that things that were a kind of reflection on life, things that were imitating living things. So um, I decided actually to to study arts instead of engineering, um, because I felt that I would have more freedom within an arts course, which was kind of true, but then I probably didn't get all the technical support that I would have got from an engineering course. Uh, I then, uh, when I left university, I worked in uh, special effects, uh, uh, film and TV for a while, also making robots. Uh, and uh, I, what you can do on screen, of course, is uh, very different from reality. And I, I wanted to make things that were real, things that were close up. And I would say, uh, like, if you interact with a robot, for real close up and you talk to it it moves around you um this is like imagine you've gone to the cinema and you've you've watched jaws the movie okay so it's a scary film about sharks but when you actually get up close if you were in a swimming pool with a shark or you got in the sea and there was a shark there that's a very different thing so i i wanted that kind of experience i, I wanted to make machines that really connected with people uh that you really felt an impact from. So uh, that was what I was moving towards. I, and I, so I guess it, what I'm saying is it's always been there, this idea to, to make something that appears to be alive. And I think that's the fascination for me. Can we make a machine that appears to be alive? Interesting. Well, what is the first thing you built? Because I saw that it's 18 years now evolution and but what is the first thing you built and yeah. what did you look to the market back then what is the first thing that you sort of okay. very, very yeah yeah so when when we started out engineered arts we were very much focused on sort of science education we because we already had we already had customers and we were working i did some work for the science museum in london for the eden project down here in cornwall glasgow science center other venues in the uk and we were telling the story uh, it was about technology, it was about phenomena, it was about explaining the physical world to people. And I realized that actually, if you stand and talk to somebody, that's probably one of the best ways. And But you can't do that for a thousand people every day. You can't tell the same story a thousand times. So I thought, well, really, this is something you could you could automate. So... The first humanoid robot we built, Robothespian, kind of came out of that idea of automating human interaction uh, to do a repetitive task. So for each person, it was the first time they heard it. But for the robot, it was the 10,000th 
time it said the same thing. So it seemed like a, a good idea for automation and it was popular uh, and it worked, but we didn't, I can't say that we had a, a super solid business plan. I've never really thought that way round. Um, it was more a case of make something that I felt connected with, excited by, uh, proud of, and put it out there and see how other people felt. And the response was good. So uh, it kind of grew organically from there. Yeah, so that that was kind of um, early days. And uh, um, you mentioned Amica. So Amica is uh, our latest generation of humanoid robot. And Amica was conceived as a platform, really, for for not just us, for for other people to use. So uh, many of the first Amicas have gone to university labs, quite a few in Germany. So yeah, Amica was really designed as as a platform. Uh, so th there's some fantastic advances happening with uh, large language models, computer vision, machine learning, uh, so much happening at the moment. But what we were looking at is how can you integrate all of these things? How can you put them together and make an experience that that connects with people? And actually, it becomes quite quite a difficult challenge. So robotics is really an integration problem. Um, you have all of the actuation, the hardware, uh, and then you have many different software modules that all have to to work together. Uh, debugging a, a complex system like that was a, just a huge headache. Uh, if you can't visualize the data and what's happening within a, in a system, it's almost impossible to debug it. So uh, a lot of the company's focus has actually been on how do you build the framework for AI, for robotics, um, and how do you do that integration and how can you rapidly iterate uh, try out different things so you know, of course we've tried GPT-3 uh, there are many others GPT-Neo GPT-J uh, different uh, computer vision libraries media pipe uh, tensorflow uh, you know lots of different components and things that you want to try uh, how to tie them all together. So it's, it's a communications problem. Uh, you need fast protocols. Uh, there's a lot of data moving around. Uh, you have to have low latency. Uh, so if you've got issues like, uh, imagine uh, a robot that's tracking objects, uh, you have to do that pretty fast. Otherwise, the you know, you've got a lag in the in the eyes of the robot and that's very, very noticeable. Uh, and also just things like response time in, in conversation. So those these are some of the problems uh, that we spend our time solving, but it's always with the aim of building a better experience for the person interacting with the robot. So it's always about the people. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Maybe I'll come to the actuation in a second, but maybe the question I want to ask you, when we look, for example, Software Robotics Bank or other companies just fail to make the product sustainable. When we look to Pepper Robot, mm. for example, there's something missing. And I feel mm. when look to Amica, for example, this kind of connection, just more realis realism here. When you look to mm -hmm. the market, what was missing to make a product sustainable or connect with people for a long term? Okay, so the, the 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 biggest thing that's missing in the robotics market is the robotics market. 
it this is a, this is an odd one i re, i remember in early days when i i was at a show and some guys from older barham were there and they were just starting out and we'd actually we found it before them so we were going for a while and they came over and they said hey uh you know where do you sell and uh where does where does your product go and because uh, they weren't weren't sure what the market was and i said the first thing to know is the robotics market is absolutely tiny so don't scale too big and i think this is what I, the mistake a lot of people have made is they've assumed that there is a market and you'll see all kinds of market reports that claim that you know there's 10 million dollars in uh humanoid robots it's just not true it's a very very tiny market uh so we've always been quite wary of that uh it's low volume quite high value uh i hope one day that we'll get to a more a, a, a wider lower cost uh so get unit cost down um but the functionality is so if you think about what what kind of things would those robots do so everybody has a kind of vision of oh i'll have a a robot butler i'll have a uh, a home help now there's a big problem here that to make that kind of robot is really expensive and the total cost of that robot has to be covered by a single user or maybe a, a family unit so a few people have to cover the cost of a very expensive robot and the economics uh, really don't work out so if you think about where expensive complex robots are successful think of factory automation so you might have a million dollar robot but it makes 10 million automobile parts so the cost per part is insignificant it's a one-to-many proposition. So we have to think about the robot. If we're gonna make a robot that's going to interact with people, it needs to interact with tens of thousands of people to justify the cost of it. So we always focused on public venues, uh, science museums, theme parks, visitor attractions, that kind of thing, places where you have a high volume of people. Then the cost of a robot is quite easy to justify and you can make a business model around that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, man. Maybe a big quick question before going to the actuation and other parts of the brain. Yeah. Why bother building yeah. a humanoid robot? I think that's a question. Why would bother build a humanoid robot? Or something maybe completely like different, fictitious. I don't know. Depending on fitness, of course, and environment. But why question that obsession to build a humanoid? And I, I saw a couple of your interviews about, for example, mm-hmm. comparing to Boston Dynamic Atlas. And I totally agree with that. I feel Atlas is impressive, but when I'm seeing about the practicality and safety, it could be dangerous to work mm-hmm. around with. So I, I I share this also, but what do you think, why bother building humanoid robots? What is, what is the point here? What's the point? Okay, so you have to see it from the human perspective. And you also have to see it that it's not just an engineering or a business exercise. It's also a creative endeavor. Uh, uh, What we're exploring is the nature of what it is to be human. Uh, So how is this machine different from me? So think of it in terms of an art project. So part of what we do, and the clues in the company name, uh, is art. And part of what we do is engineering. Now, that doesn't mean that either one is less than the other. Uh, Both things are super important. And it it was interesting, you just mentioned uh, Boston Dynamics. So 
Boston Dynamics, a huge fan. Wow, what amazing robots. You know, I think one of the things that really got me enthused about uh, robotics is, uh, you know, the early uh, CMU uh, videos from Mark Robert, uh, Dan Brown, I think it is. Uh, they, you know, the single leg hopping robots, the, the early pneumatic biped robots just amazing why are they so amazing because they were the first robots that had this biological motion they moved like living things and to me that was a huge connection it was very powerful very emotive it wasn't about utility it was i wasn't ever thinking oh i want uh this robot to bring me a beer and clean my floor all I wanted was to see that robot move. It was about the performance. It was about the connection the robot made to me as a synthetic living thing. And I think, you know, uh, it's interesting that probably, I would guess one of the most com commercially successful things that Boston Dynamics have ever done was the Sam Adams beer advert they made for the Super Bowl. Ooh, long day, huh? Uh, happy hour. Thank you. Hey, buddy. You want a Sam Adams? All right. Hello. Your cousin from Boston. Wicked hazy. Wicked tropical. Wicked double. That's it. You guys know how to party. Get it, girl. And the connection you see in that between the people and the machines is just astounding. And, you know, why are we so captivated by that? That's that's the real, real question. And it's nothing to do with utility. So don't, don't fall into this, I call it the utility trap, where people go, uh, you know, uh, this robot's going to assemble pipes in my car factory or whatever. These, these things are not really so significant. What's significant is how we feel about the technology. Um, yeah, uh, I'm not sure if that answers the question. I kind of wandered off a bit there. <laughs> yeah, that's totally understandable. I think it's an interesting point that you don't have to always focus yeah. what could be utilization of it. So I think it's interesting and I totally get well, what you mean. I, th I think if you think, think about just the economics of that. So I think I, I read that Hollywood is responsible for 5% of US GDP. So don't underestimate the business of entertainment. It's just as valid as the business of manufacturing or the, the business of road sweeping or anything else you can think of. So, uh, you know, part of human need is that connection. Uh, we need to have more stimulation. It's, it's not just about eat, drink, reproduce. There's more to life. Excellent. Maybe I want to move to the actuation because I think that's a very interesting part and I, I liked your take in one of your interviews. Yeah. But maybe starting that I, I wrote mm. on, on Twitter that I'm maybe I'm popular opinion. I'm not a, I don't like pneumatic actuation, uh, uh, maybe in soft mm. robotics, but I don't like it. It's bulky, it's noisy. And um, I know I'm wondering if you're about to yeah. use combination pneumatic and motors and there's other companies now starting using pneumatic actuation. But mm -hmm. you say that if we have this kind of artificial muscle that resemble human being, that will shift the whole paradigm of the design. And this was really beautiful mm -hmm. to, to hear that from you. 
Can you tell us mm-hmm. what do you think about the pneumatic actuation with motor? And if we use pneumatic only, it's, it's, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't like it. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm just curious about mm-hmm. your point of view. Okay, so I'm open to anything that works. The um, it's, it's really, really interesting. We, we have nothing that approaches the properties of human muscle. We just don't have it. Now, a large BLDC motor we can start to get there. So one of the the key features of uh, biological systems is the very high level of transparency. It's very easy to backdrive and we can go into a relaxed state where we can just make parts of our body completely floppy. Why is this important? Because this allows us to follow the natural dynamics and this makes us super efficient. So if we go back to Boston Dynamics, Uh, If you look at bipedal locomotion, uh, quadruped locomotion, you have uh, various phases in the the control cycle where you want to go to zero torque. Zero torque. Now, okay, oh, easy. Just set the torque to zero. No, not easy because you added a harmonic drive with a 200 to 1 reduction and the whole system is rigid as hell. You know, so as soon as you start putting high gear ratios into a robot, it's very, very hard to make that robot behave in a human-like way or an animalistic way, a biological way, because that's not how we are. We we operate with generally antagonistic pairs. There's two muscles working against each other. Now, some engineers would look at that and say, hey, you know, I can use one motor instead of two muscles because my one motor goes forwards and backwards. Okay, you're just looking at it as a position problem. It's not a position problem. It's a force and compliance problem. So the great thing about having two muscles is they can both relax. And if they both relax, the the bone or whatever's being actuated, the end effector. So if I'm, I'm looking at my wrist now, uh, if I relax my wrist, it just flops around. And if I wave my arm, I can make my wrist move around, but I'm not using the muscles that are directly connect, coupled to my hand, I'm just waving my arm and I'm following that dynamic motion. And if you look at efficiency in walking gait or grasping objects, it's all about this ability to be able to be very highly compliant, to have this relaxed floppy state, and you are not doing it with a very highly geared drive chain. Bring in pneumatics. So what does pneumatics give us? It gives us a high power density in a small space. Uh, you'll note uh, some early Boston Dynamics robots were pneumatic. Most, mostly, I think Atlas is pretty much hydraulic. Spot uh, BLDC, uh, brushless DC. Um, so uh, we've seen big advances in the power density you can achieve with a with a brushless motor. So uh, there's a there's an idea. I think it's credited to MIT, the the kind of uh, quasi-direct drive. So we're we're not quite at the point where you can uh, direct drive with a uh, brushless motor. But if you put a very low gear reduction, quasi, uh, you can pretty much get there. So if you've you've got four to one, five to one, something like that, uh, you can get enough torque without sacrificing too much of the drive transparency, which is a very, very desirable characteristic. So uh, a lot of the, you know, quadruped robots uh, that you see, 
uh, they use this quasi-direct-drive principle. Uh, what if uh, you could reduce the load much further? And this is something uh, that we we have a, an industrial robot arm. I haven't really talked about it anywhere much. This is the first time I'm mentioning it. It's called Poiser. Uh, and we have some patents on it. We have some patents on it now. Um, how does it work? It's a parallel uh, pneumatic brushless DC. And the pneumatic component takes about 95% of the load. And the brushless DC component takes the other 5%, but also provides the precision in the drive. So it's quite analogous to skeletal muscle. So we have our fast twitch and our slow twitch muscle. Actually, I think there are more, more than seven kinds of uh, human muscle, um, but the, the two main skeletal types. So one is really good at sustained high loads. The other is very good at fast response. Now you need to couple these two properties together. There isn't a kind of one actuator solves everything, you know, uh, Hydraulics kind of, you can get a lot of the properties you need. And, the, you know, I can see why Boston Dynamics are using uh, hydraulics for Atlas because it really does solve a lot of the problems, but it also creates a heap of headaches as well. So you, leaking oil, not an easy one to de deal with. There's also no inherent uh, energy storage in the system either. So uh, with pneumatics, you've got effectively an air spring. Uh, so you can have some energy storage in the in in the system. Hydraulics, that's much harder. You could have parallel springs, I guess, but then it's how do you uh, allow the, the hydraulics to work in such a way that you can be transparent enough to store the energy in the springs as well. So the generally hydraulic robots are pretty inefficient and they run very hot. Uh, I've never stood next to an Atlas robot, but I've heard it's a pretty hot experience if you do, because uh, they dissipate many hundreds, even thousands of watts. I'm really curious about the physical embodiment here and the facial expression, since you mentioned that mm -hmm. we have 43 mm -hmm. muscles mm -hmm. and it was challenging to embody all of these muscles. How, how did you mm -hmm. manage to capture the most interesting, like, I think it's 24, I correct? I think we're up to 29 now. So, um, yeah, so facial action units, there's a kind of an encoding system for human facial expressions. I think it goes off the top of my head to 43. So we haven't got quite all of them. Uh, some of them are much less significant. So uh, you obviously you start with the ones that show the most. So uh, we, of course, we started with eyes. Uh, and there's an old saying, the eyes are the window to the soul. So if you can do the right thing with the eyes, people really connect with that. Eye contact is super important. The speed that the eyes move at, the accuracy of the gaze, super important. A lot of our early work was just getting very high uh, servo rates for the eyes, very smooth, very backlash free. Uh, you don't want any wobble jitter in the eyes because that looks very, very unnatural. Uh, and then picking up on behaviors of the eyelids. So look at yourself in the mirror look up and down and you'll see that your upper eyelids track your iris almost perfectly it's almost like that you'll see that your upper eyelids track your your iris of your eye almost perfectly it's almost like they're glued together 
Now, when you blink, the blinking behavior overrides that. So we look at these kind of human features, the way the eyelids move in relation to eyeballs, the way that the skates, uh, you know, glances, the rapid eye movements, the way we focus on different objects and the way we move between details, we try to emulate. So um, one thing you'll find, so try to move your eyes very slowly and evenly from left to right. You'll find you can't do it. It's it's not possible. It's very easy to do with a robot and it looks very unnatural. Uh, so we spend a lot of time studying what human behavior looks like and trying to emulate that. And of course, we pick the most significant things. So I talked a lot about eyes. Uh, more recently, we've been working on uh, lips, lip sync. Lip sync is... Uh, Lip sync is a big challenge because there's so much flexibility. It's uh, it's really hard to apply engineering to something as squidgy and soft as a, as a human mouth, something so uh, difficult to define. Uh, we started out by making a lot of scans. So we have a photogrammetry rig here, which is basically we can capture uh, very quickly in a thousandth of a second, we can capture a, a human face. Uh, it's necessary to uh, have that high speed. You don't want to have a slow speed scan because you're going to get all kinds of distortion and also you don't want to have to ask a subject to oh, just stay still for three seconds while I scan you because you don't get the dynamic movement that you want. So good scanning apparatus was a, a requirement. Photogrammetry is the way to go with that. Um, we then look at all of the different shapes, the extremes that uh, a given human face can make. Uh, we take marker points on the on the skin surface and track what the motion would be. Uh, we then try to emulate that motion with a a mechanism under the skin. Uh, generally, we're using small brush DC motors. Uh, reason for not using brushless is uh, just the amount of wires to be honest it's it's harder to integrate uh there's uh some people will push back hard against uh using brush dc motors if you use the very high quality ones they are absolutely fine we don't get fails so um yeah and they, it it's all about space saving uh human muscle again so all of our facial actuation uh, it happens in this just tiny surface layer, really, um, on top of our skull. Uh, we can't emulate that. We don't have an actuator that can do it. So uh, we end up using all of the void inside of the head for the actuation. This is, uh, it's lucky that we don't need that space for a brain. Uh, I would say, you know, this is this is the great benefit of wireless connectivity. The brain doesn't have to be in the, in the robot, uh, but you can't have wireless mechanics uh, there's nothing for that yet so uh you know the mechanical space we have these physical limitations interesting we want to go back in the beginning did you have any mechanism that, like failed or you thought it would work very well but it just didn't work especially for, for oh nearly everything we make yeah nearly everything we make doesn't work uh, it's <laughs> you you only see sort of one percent of what we do if you see something that engineered arts made that works you can guarantee there are another 99 things like it that don't work so it's 
it's fail fast, fail often, uh, learn fast. And uh, in the early days of the company, we used to subcontract some of our mechanical engineering, but the iteration cycle was too too slow. So you 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 can spend a long time uh, doing engineering analysis and CAD design and staring at a screen, but there are always things that do not behave in the way that you expect. Now you get more experience, you get better at it, but there are reality is always a different thing. So we like to go to physical prototypes really quickly. So we have a very well-equipped workshop. So there's a, a seven axis CNC mill turns, four axis mill, three axis mill, sliding head, head lathe with B axis, industrial scale, SLA printing, laser welding, any bit of equipment that we think can speed up the process we will invest in. Uh, so we have a, a kind of philosophy, you design in the morning, you build in the afternoon, and you fail in the evening, and some evenings you don't fail. Those are the great ones. <laughs> so uh, you know, and you, but it's all about this iterative cycle. So uh, I think uh, I've talked before about the number of iterations we went through on Next for Amica. I think it was seven major versions. We've actually just done a new one. Uh, it's, a, it's only a small incremental improvement to the last one, but we we realised there were some features of the geometry that could have been more optimal. Uh, so we will study, we'll, we'll make all the three-dimensional plots and we'll do the force curves and the rest of it. And uh, some, But the broad strokes, it, it, it's quicker to physically prototype. I want to ask you about the legs because you will add the legs to make a robot. How do you think about why you should add that? And if you think about the physical intelligence to reduce control and make it simpler, can you tell us why did you mm. plan to integrate legs for Emika? What is the reason? Just uh, so uh, walking is a form of expression, and uh, you know, movement is a form of expression. So it's more about communication than it is, and it's also being able to navigate human spaces. But I don't see it as a utility task. So if I wanted to get things in a factory from one end to the other, I would use a conveyor belt because it's much lower cost, it, uh, it's a continuous operation, it's tried and tested technology, you do not need a walking robot. So when I hear you know, Elon Musk talking about Tesla bot working in the, in the car factory, I'm like, you're nuts. You know, you, you've already got an automated factory, what are you talking about? So I, I don't get that at all. Um, the, uh, I, don't, I don't understand the rationale of humanoid robot for utility task it doesn't add up to me so why so back to the original question why why make a walking version of amica it's about the impact that that has um we did a lot of work on a project called byron about six seven years ago uh it was a biarticulate design sort of six bar linkage uh in the legs and that was about imitating the rolling joint in the uh, human knee. So it's quite biomimetic. Uh, and it was also uh, imitating the way that the muscle structure works in a human leg, the way rectus femoris, biceps femoris, gastrocnemius, where the, the muscles couple. When people walk, we're almost like a glider. We, you know, our legs almost walk by themselves. 
So there was just some really interesting work done uh, by Tad McGeer. So passive dynamic walking, if you've if you've ever seen any of that work. Um, so you can make a walking walking machine with no active control at all. Uh, another robot that I found uh, very inspiring was the, the work they did at Cornell, Cornell Ranger, Andy Ruiner's team. Uh, a really nice, elegant, very, very low cost of transport uh, and basically trying to just go that one step up from passive uh, to active, but still keeping the natural dynamics of the system. And it's actually way harder than you think. Um, it's, um, I always liken it, it's like a clock escapement. So clock, a uh, uh, mechanical clock, a swinging pendulum. How do you put energy into that pendulum without affecting the frequency of the pendulum? And that was a, a problem that, uh, you know, uh, some of the best minds in engineering struggled with for a century. Uh, we probably all uh, know about uh, Harrison and, and his clocks. Uh, how, how to do that is actually fantastically difficult. And it's one of the problems that we struggle with. To get a really nice walking gait, to get running gaits, you have parts of that gait cycle where you just want the limb to follow the natural dynamic of the system. Now you can do things like, you know, I've seen people try this a lot and then it's, uh, oh, I'll put a force sensor in and I'll track the force. Yeah, it, it just doesn't work very well. You get, you always end up with a, a difficult control problem. You end up with oscillations. Uh, you know, you, you see it, uh, when you see a very twitchy robot, it's usually somebody trying to do force feedback and not getting the control quite right. Uh, I've even seen it on, uh, yeah, you, you'll see it a lot. So how can you make a, a system where you can follow the natural dynamics and you can do it, uh, without having to have active force loops, uh, that raise the cost and the complexity and lower the reliability of the system. Those are the kind of things that we're working on. Uh, again, it comes back to parallel actuation. So we're looking at hybrid uh, pneumatic electric. Uh, I think we have some, we're gonna have some really good stuff to show. Oh, I've already seen some stuff in the lab that's super, super encouraging. So I think it's the way to go. Which one is more significant to you? Is it the brain side or the body side? Since we speak about humanoid robots, where do you think the missing pieces that need to be solved? So when we're working on robots, uh, it's the brain, I suppose, uh, software integration, uh, the way that the robot behaves is very important, but the, the physical presence and the physical abilities of the robot are equally so. So it's, um, it's, it's really, I wouldn't say one is more important than the other. I wouldn't say that you have to uh, prioritize hardware over software or, or, or the other way around. Uh, and, and robotics is really this integration challenge. So I think they're equally important. Uh, we, within that, you look for what are the most relevant things? What what should we focus on? So for us, it's always about interaction. So HRI, human robot interaction. What are the things that matter most? Uh, 
from the software point of view, it's awareness, so the computer vision, facial recognition, uh, expression estimation, uh, hand pose estimation, body estimation, uh, uh, location. Uh, all of those things are, are really important because those are the things we would use in a in a human to human conversation. Uh, from the mechanical point of view, we're looking for smooth biological motion. So the, it's, the motion curves are important. The compliance of the robot is important, how back drivable it is. Um, we try not to get too lost in technical uh, detail that doesn't actually have much impact. So, uh, you know, biggest bang for buck. What, what, what really makes an impact? Uh, that's, that's where we put our focus. So the so the big challenges on the on the brain side on the on the cognition the conversation uh, it it's integrated so we've got there's many great components and of course we use uh, a, a lot of open source uh, code uh, we use some proprietary paid for components but it's what the real challenge is how you put all of that together so uh, we have a, a component. Uh, called Viz, which is a, a, a 3D visualization. So something like Arviz, if you've used uh, ROS or, or similar to Gazebo, maybe. Uh, and that allows us to see the, not only the robot's body pose, but also any conversational input, what the robot's heard, uh, what the robot's estimation of the people around it is, how many people are there, where are they, what are their facial expressions, what did they say last, what's their attention to the robot. Um, it gets when you've got a very large number of parameters and also a large number of contributing software modules. So you might have a computer vision module, you might have uh, automated speech recognition (ASR), uh, you might have say, say also a lidar uh, for uh, location estimation. Um, all of these are running as separate modules. How do you aggregate all of that? How do you do the sensor fusion? So that's a that's a big problem um, and uh, the visualization is is key to that you have to be able to just look at a 3d scene and see basically what the robot thinks is going on you haven't got a hope of debugging something like this on command line watching a bunch of uh, strings of text whiz past on a screen is uh, is pretty hopeless uh, the same is true for visualization of uh, the actuation of the robot. So we have a, a, a kind of virtual oscilloscope application called Probe, uh, which allows us to monitor any particular signal on the robot. And that can be anything from hardware to software. So it could be the current in a motor, the position of a motor, or it could be an event fired by a facial recognition program, or it could be the location of a face within an image. So whether it's a, a piece of software running remotely or whether it's a piece of hardware on the, ro uh, on the robot itself, uh, we can visualize all of that data and that makes it much easier to debug. So those are, those are the big challenges uh, for for the robot behavior is how to put everything together and how to debug that and how to code in a way that's uh, you know fast moving efficient 
So we, we work a lot in Python uh, and uh, the latest version of our Tritium robot framework actually integrates Git. So um, that's a version control software management uh, is integrated with, within the uh, IDE, within the development environment. And uh, these are all things that we've implemented. I've been working in soft robotic and rigid robotics and there's always a trade-off in the actuation we have. And the question is how we can have an artificial muscle that could resemble the biological one? What does it take to achieve this design? And maybe it will shift the design paradigm, but how we can do that? Okay, so on the actuation side, uh, there is no artificial muscle that matches human muscle or biological muscle. So there's there's nothing even close. So you will, uh, we've experimented with uh, McKibben type muscles, otherwise known as fluidic muscles, or uh, it's a type of uh, membrane pneumatic actuator. Uh, you can use the traditional pneumatic cylinders. Uh, we we talked a bit uh, about hydraulics. Uh, now, obviously, you can get fantastic power out of a hydraulic system, but hydraulics is basically a transmission. It's not an actuator per se in that you need pressurized oil to run it. So you're really just deferring the problem. You need a big motor somewhere. Um, there are the, the HASL, I think it's called, uh, the sort of dielectric membrane type actuators. Uh, and there's electroactive polymer, EAP. Uh, there's uh, shape memory alloy, SMA. There's, so there's uh, a lot of different ideas, uh, a lot of technologies that people have tried. Nothing comes close. Um, one of the, the the big limitations on most artificial muscles is contraction ratio. So contraction ratio of human muscle, you know, how, from its relaxed state to its tense or contracted state, uh, how, how much difference there is. It can be up to 75% with human muscle, more typically around 50%. Now, if you look at something like a fluidic muscle or McKibben type actuator, you're lucky to get over 25% and really the theoretical maximum is around 30. So uh, you might think, oh, well, this is not a problem. You know, I can just change the, uh, the leverage of the attachment points, but it actually, having spent a decade working on that i can tell you it is a big problem the other one is um attachment the way that you can distort the muscle so uh for pneumatic mckibben type muscles uh they cannot be twisted uh they cannot be misaligned uh, now it's typical in human body that our muscles do twist and they attach in a very fluid and organic way and this doesn't cause a problem but with the artificial muscles we have we don't have good end attachments and the way that they f fuse to the skeletal structure underneath is is clunky uh it's uh it's difficult to emulate a biological system so i wish we did have it um people many people have come to us and said can we do it and i and i no amount of money can do it. There's a fundamental breakthrough that needs to happen. Uh, and uh, it's not here yet.
Um, so I'll talk about the energy part first. So Amica, the non-mobile versions that we're making at the moment are just, you know, they're, they're powered from a mains electrical outlet. So uh, uh, autonomy is not a consideration. Now, obviously, as soon as we are adding mobility, autonomy is a big consideration. Uh, and this is another reason that we're very interested in the parallel actuation in energy storage so this is why i prefer the hybrid pneumatic electrical approach because the pneumatics are actually an excellent way of storing energy um, a hydraulic robot really poor at storing energy um, motor driven robot they theoretically you can back drive the motors to generate some power and, and and store it but in reality that's uh, actually pretty inefficient and difficult to do uh storing energy just in a spring is a pretty good way to go uh this is i mentioned earlier uh andy ruina's uh uh cornell ranger uh one of the the most efficient robots and that's efficient because it follows natural dynamics and th that's a an important key so uh, cost, uh, right now our robots are a, a low volume uh, item and low volume means high cost. And we have not optimized them for cost because at the moment the the market is still very small. So um, when you get into producing hundreds, thousands of units, uh, then it's much more relevant to try and uh, cost optimize. Now we're we're back to this uh, question about the market. Now there there is no market for humanoid robots, no significant market. There are some niche applications, there are research applications, there are some very niche emerging markets, but it's not like a product like an automobile or a refrigerator or a dishwashing machine where there's a very established market for hundreds of thousands or even millions of units. Um, you know, if next uh, this year we will probably produce absolute maximum 30 units. Uh, so that gives you an idea. Um, we could probably the demand is there maybe for more like maybe 100. Uh, so uh, but it's still this is a tiny, tiny volume. Uh, compared with uh, more mass market products. So um, I think one of the the big issues is uh, actually finding out what humanoid robots are really good for and finding the the really great applications, the killer applications. And at the moment, we're still exploring that. We're still building what are the great applications? Where do these robots really excel? We're starting to find some 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 good niche applications. And then can we grow that into something uh, with a wider application area, which I think we can. And part of the, what uh, stops wider adoption is the maturity of the technology. So as the technology matures, it becomes easier to use, easier to maintain, more reliable. Then suddenly you find market segments open up. Uh, uh, but it's slow. It doesn't happen overnight. So it's, you know, thinking back to the automobile example, uh, yeah, there was a famous quote, I think, from Henry Ford, something if I'd have asked people what they wanted, they would have said a better horse, you know. So but the the basic principle there was the car was replacing a horse. We already had a means of transport. The car was an, uh, uh, 
easier to run probably than a horse, easier to look after, probably lasted longer. Um, so, you know, the, the car was replacing something existing that we already had uh, a need for. And a new model of car, of course, is coming into a market with where we, we've been using cars for over 100 years. We Everybody knows what they are. We know how to use them. Now, this is not true for humanoid robots. So when I hear people say, oh, I'm going to be selling more humanoid robots than I am cars, I said, well, first, you've got to wait about 100 years because that's how long it's going to take to get the market to that size. Now, I'm not saying it won't happen, but it's going to take time. Uh, that That's my take on it. Another interesting point, I think, what kind of emotion do we have when we interact with different kind of robots? And I think this point is very interesting because personally, when I work with rigid robot like Spot, I feel this kind of connection with the robot. And it sounds maybe, yeah, it's, it's just sound not real, but that's what I feel. And I was asking, what does it take to design robot that can connect with human being? And when they feel scared and when they feel is so what's interesting is um we also have a line of robots called mesma which are much more lifelike so they have more natural colored skins and uh, look look a bit more like people and actually when we released amica uh, a lot of the youtube comments and social media comments and things that we got was oh this is your most lifelike robot you've ever made and i was well I visually, no, it isn't. Uh, what do you mean? Um, what they were actually talking about is the kind of dynamic properties of the robot. It was, it was about how it moved. So um, we've probably most of us have heard of the Uncanny Valley, and this is a kind of graph with a big dip in it, and it's acceptability uh, versus how close the robot looks to a person so the idea is the closer you get to looking like a person the more acceptable the robot becomes until you get very very close and then it becomes creepy and weird uh and then when you get so close you can't tell the difference it's not creepy anymore because it's just like a person so you get this dip uh the, the uncanny valley um but there are actually two versions of this graph there is the static version and there is the dynamic version so boston dynamics clue in the name uh, are fantastically good at the dynamic side so uh, another interesting uh point i think looking at uh older videos of uh big dog their quadruped now big dog has no head has no face, has no eyes, has no kind of expressive characteristics at all, except its limbs. Now, there's a there's an early video where uh, one of the engineers is uh, kicking the robot, uh, not because they're intending to hurt it, just to demonstrate the balance capabilities. Um, but if you read the comments underneath that video, you'll see people saying things like, oh, what terrible cruelty to, to an animal. Um, these comments are not a joke. These comments are actually serious. And why are people thinking that way? They're thinking that way because the motion is so good that they have a feeling that this thing is alive. Um, that biological motion has triggered something and said, hang on, this thing's alive. Don't kick it. You know, so. Um, to me, that's it's this dynamic uh, information I think is every bit as important as the static information. 
things we're working on, of course, we already talked about bipedal locomotion. Uh, we're working on uh, improved dexterous uh, manipulation, so better hands, basically. Uh, why? So that the robot can interact with people. And actually, one of the first things we're looking at is just playing board games. Um, because sitting down and playing a game with a robot, playing chess, playing drafts, checkers, go, whatever, uh, is actually a lot of fun. And uh, it's also about the character, the interaction of the robot, uh, what it knows about you. So a memory. Uh, so when you meet a robot for a second time, uh, at the moment, if you meet Amica for a second time, it's got no recollection of the first time you met. Uh, so how can we build the memory? How can we make it more human-like in that way? Um, those are the goals. It's 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 about make a machine that feels intuitive and easy to use. It's as easy as talking to, to a person um, and make it make that experience as fun as possible. Uh, that's that's what we're aiming towards. Did you have any moment of doubt or maybe did you receive any criticism at the early stages of establishing engineered art? Yeah, moments of doubt. I always, <laughs> you always face a lot of technical challenges and they I, I would say it was more moments of disappointment. Uh, uh, I never really felt that this was a thing that couldn't be done and I wanted to give up. I just felt that actually this is a really hard thing to do. But, um, you know, I like, I like to pinch Kennedy's speech about going to the moon. You know, we choose to do these things because they are difficult, not because they're easy. So if we just gave ourselves uh, the easy tasks, life would be boring. So I've tried to pick something that's fantastically difficult, knowing full well that we'll never actually achieve the perfect result uh but it's the about it's about the journey so uh my father used to say to me it's better to travel hopefully than to arrive uh because once you get there what are you going to do <laughs> so uh pick something really difficult try your hardest you'll get part of the way there it's uh, pretty rewarding but uh don't ever fully arrive because what then and why we do what we do in robotics? Something doesn't make sense to you. Why we use this solution for such a problem? Do you have any criticism or any big piece? There's a lot of stuff that we I see in robotics, and uh, anybody who follows me on LinkedIn will know that I'm uh, uh, not afraid to say uh, say something about robots that I think are probably a bit of a waste of time. So you see the misapplication of technology fairly often. Uh, one of my personal pet hates is uh, getting a six-axis six robot arm to do something that uh, a piece of bespoke automation equipment could do a lot better. Um, I also uh, get really fed up with the position control paradigm that everybody's stuck with. Um, you know, you're trying to imitate what people do. Why is it that most industrial pick-and-place robots are so bad Uh, uh doing what humans find so easy uh, and it's because of this position control paradigm so we we work mainly with force with tactile feedback uh, we're very very compliant we're able to adapt to our surroundings to our environment to objects that we're handling 
as soon as you go to a rigid position controlled device, all of those things become really, really hard. And then you see people sinking loads of time into computer vision tasks uh, to try and compensate for basically fundamentally flawed hardware. And I find that irritating. I think it's a waste of time. I would like to ask you about some robotics market. What do you think about it? I think it's very... So for soft robotics, I think it's very early days still. So there's there's some interesting uh, soft robotics applications, um, but the technology is very immature. Uh, I think we will, you know, it's yet to find its place, but I think it's definitely worth pursuing. And, uh, you know, personally, I find it very interesting. So, uh, I, I, but I would say it's nascent, you know, it, it's something in its very early years. Finally, I would like to ask you if you have any final messages you would like to share with people listening and um, something you should consider. Yeah, so um, I would apply your automation for good would be, you know, so we have a, our company uh, ethos is to always make people happier, not sadder. So, um, and I think when it comes to industrial automation with robots, if a robot can take away a job that a human never should have been doing, that's a good thing. If a human's livelihood is taken away, that's a bad thing. But that's a political question. That's not an engineering question. So what happens to the profits of automation and robotics is a political question and go, don't get muddled over that and don't blame the robot for political decisions. Uh, so uh, I think that would be uh, the things I would keep in mind.